Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today is Sanjay Singhal, the founder of the Nikayan Foundation. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Sanjay. Thanks for having me, Richard. Let's start out by you telling us about the Nikayan Foundation. What is it? And when did you start it? And why did you start it? So my daughter, unfortunately, has anorexia. Um, She was first diagnosed at age 8, hospitalized, uh, hospitalized again at age 16. It's been a lifelong struggle for her. She's 26 years old now. She's made it to the third year of residency for psychiatry at the University of Toronto. So she wants to solve this problem for herself, solve it for other people. And I had always told her that I would contribute to research um, to help find a treatment for anorexia. Uh, once she was finished her her studies, and we could do it together. About three years ago, I ran into Robin Carhart Harris, uh, who's a researcher at Imperial College in London, England, and he was at, uh, giving a talk and suggested that uh, psilocybin might actually be a treatment, maybe even a cure for anorexia. And my daughter and I, uh, I spoke with him afterwards. My daughter and I flew out to London a couple of weeks later to meet. Um, with him and his team, we're really impressed with what psilocybin could do. Uh, up until that point, I had no idea that psychedelics were potential medicine. Um, and after the meeting, I agreed uh, to write a check personally um, to to Imperial. I was one of four Cornerstone supporters. Tim Ferriss was another one uh, to get that going. And then um, I started doing some reading and discovered, wow, there's actually a lot here. You know. Uh, People have been doing this for 50 years. There's a ton of evidence that it's safe and efficacious. Uh, we just need to pile on the scientific research to kind of break the logjam legally, politically, that will allow the politicians to legalize these drugs. Um, and as I realized how big it was, what a big deal it was, um, I realized that maybe rather than just writing a single check, um, it was time to actually get into the the game for real. For real. And I uh, created Nikayan Foundation. Um, again, with the original donation to Imperial. But since then, we've funded a number of other studies, including most recently this $5 million donation to University Health Network in Toronto for um, a a series of studies involving MDMA, psilocybin, 5-MeO-DMT. It's really exciting. Nikayan was the name of my first entrepreneurial venture, uh, my first big entrepreneurial venture, um, when I was about 30 years old. And it was a flaming disaster. It... uh, the product idea was great. It was the first wireless email device. Um, you know, I hacked the software on a Palm Pilot and let you do email on it. So the product was a success. But I was uh, I was bipolar. Uh, I was in a manic episode at the time, and I crashed and burned that company. All the employees tried to stage an intervention to get me to focus. Uh, ran out of money. There was a lot of things. But um, uh, the name Nike. So Nike, goddess of victory. Um, Nikea then would be the city of victory, and Nikean would be a citizen of the city of victory. So, uh, Richard, I would go to venture capital pitches, and I would spend the first 15 minutes explaining what a great name Nikean was, and how, you know, people who bought devices from Nikean would be considered citizens of the city of victory, and their eyes would glaze over, and I didn't know what was going on. Nobody... <laughs> it's not that nobody advised me. Nobody. It's not that nobody told me this. I was being an idiot. It's that I didn't listen. Um... So I'm trying to re- rehabilitate the name and okay. you know, not particularly talking about it, but you asked me, so okay. that, I guess yes, that's right. I want to know. Okay, it's a city of victory and it's a person in the city of victory. I like that. So tell us more about what happened uh, with your daughter and uh, psychedelics. Is there more to that story that you can share? Um, there is. I mean, I, I can't share much because really it's her story, um, but she's experienced different psychedelic treatments um and you know her reaction i think i can i can say this the first time she tried mdma was oh my god this is what it feels like to be happy this is what people talk about when they say they're happy i've never felt this um so now that i know what it feels like i can i can work to make myself feel this way when i'm not on the drug and um you know it was after an ayahuasca session was the first time she ever admitted 
I'm sick. I actually need to do something um, uh, about about my condition. She still struggles, but she's still alive. Um, anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any, any mental disorder, 25%. Uh, people die from suicide um, as much as they do from you know, wasting away from the actual lack of nutrition. And uh, so I can say she's still with us. Um, so the treatments have been successful. Number one uh, thing that she'll say is that she has hope. And if that's all psychedelics give us, that's actually quite a bit. It is quite a bit. And I've had the privilege of treating anorexia. So I'm, I'm familiar with the condition and it is uh, very serious. There's no question about it. And good for her for making it in school and, and continuing in her education. That's uh, a tip of the hat for that. Um, okay, off your daughter. I can understand it's a little uncomfortable because, after all, better that we allow her to speak for herself and maybe we'll have her on the program sometime. But how about something of your personal experience with psychedelics? Would you share some of that with us, please? Sure. Um my very first experience with with psychedelics period was um, on a beach in Thailand doing doing I think a half gram of powdered mushrooms in a chocolate shake uh, that a friend had given me without telling me what was in it. He just said, "Try this. You're you're gonna have a good time." It was a magical evening. Um, so uh, that was all I ever thought. That was maybe five years ago. And then my next experience was hearing Robin Carhart Harris talk about the mushrooms. Um, and then uh, I I set myself up. You know, the nobody nobody suggested to me that the mushrooms would be good for bipolar disorder. Um, I've been taking lamotrigine since I was 38. After trying a lot of different antidepressants, lamotrigine has been fantastic. Um, I've taken it for 18 years now. It's it's it it treats me well. There's no side effects. Can't say enough about it. But it was the fifth psychiatrist I spoke to who finally suggested it. It's an off-label anti-epileptic. So. You know, there was a lesson there about speaking to the right medical professional, getting, you know, there's a big difference between a good doctor and a great doctor. Um, so that so that I wasn't taking the Lamotrigine to treat my bipolar disorder, or sorry, I wasn't taking, trying psychedelics. I was just exploring. I wanted to see what I was going to find out. And the guide uh, on that first experience said, suggested that I write down an intent. And I thought, okay, so what's, what's on my mind? Um, you know, I worry about my weight. I worry that sometimes I go out and drink too much. I don't think I have a drinking problem, but I'd like to explore why. Sometimes I know I'm eating when I shouldn't or drinking when I shouldn't. Why do I do it? Um, and during the following four-hour psychedelic session on about four and a half grams of uh, dry mushrooms, I went on this roundabout, circuitous journey that didn't touch anything about drinking or eating, but about these emotional walls I'd built up around myself that I didn't even realize were there. Um, I've always shied away from emotion, Richard. If I was walking past somebody who was um, crying, I would like avert my face and try and try and rush, uh, rush past without uh, making eye contact. You know, if I got into an argument uh, with a loved one, with my wife, you know, I would I would shrink away from it. Like there was a lot of um, a tumult. I guess, in my household uh, growing up. My parents didn't always get along. They got along great now. Um, but uh, as a child, I think I, I walled myself off from these emotions. And uh, I had a vision during the psychedelic trip. I had a vision that showed this to me. Uh, can, I, can, I, can I tell you what I actually saw? Of course. We want to hear every little detail. <laughs> so I found myself... I, I, I was I was in a dark place. Um, somehow I knew uh, instinctively that I was at the bottom of an ocean, and I was in in a patch of light. And there was these purple figures around me that were there, there was just um, like I say tumult. There, there there was clearly some some level of hostility or action going on. I wasn't sure, but I was afraid, and I, I scooted away, and I found myself suddenly like, I don't know, 50 feet away in kind of underneath a, a cave window. And I could see this patch of light in the distance, 50 feet away. And I thought, I'm at the bottom of this ocean. This ocean is time. And I've gone back in time down to the bottom of this ocean to the beginning of my experience. And that over there is some fighting that I don't want to participate in. Um, so I'm just going to hide over here. And while I'm thinking through this, this beam of light comes down beside me. 
and a uh, a diving suit. And I remember this clearly. It was a bright white diving suit with orange piping around the uh, the helmet and the sleeves. And it came, it came floating down this pillar of light. And a voice said, get in the diving suit. We'll take you back to the surface, to the present. You'll be fine. I was very relieved. And I, um, I went over. I started to get into the diving suit. And then it occurred to me that hey, this is supposed to be therapy and I'm supposed to go towards the dark. I'm supposed to uh, supposed to deliberately be uncomfortable. And I don't know what possessed me. I said, I don't need the diving suit. Take it away. And the diving suit went away. And all of a sudden, this emotion hit me, this wall torrent of anxiety. And uh, I was just, just like, okay, maybe that was a bad decision. But then it just went through me. It took, it took maybe two seconds and this wall uh, of emotion went right through me and then it was gone. And it became really clear to me in that moment that, oh my God, that was 50 years ago. Whatever that was, and I don't even remember what it was, it was 50 years ago. How in the world, why in the world would that have an effect on me now? And that was it. Um, uh, I went on to uh, other visions, other things that were funnier thoughts, but... How old were um, that you was at the time, Sanjay? That was that was two years ago. Two years ago. Uh, how old are you? Uh, fifty six now. Uh, fifty four. So you were fifty four. So it was yeah. twenty four years after that first uh, that event of that uh, company that uh, you told us about. Yes, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, and and yeah, and sixteen years after after starting Lamotrigine and getting my life on track. I mean, my, I've, mm-hmm. I've been really fortunate, met the right person, people, certainly um, my wife, and have had you know like one business success after another once I got my emotions under control. Well, I gathered that after that failure at age thirty, you've had some uh, fabulous business successes in order to be able to write a check for five million dollars for uh, you know for a foundation. Yes, like I say, I've been very fortunate. A lot of other people have worked very hard, um, and uh, and it's been great. And fortunately, fortunately, unfortunately, that's a, that's a different conversation. We, you know, once you have this kind of money, um, it tends to multiply upon itself. And so, you know, it became became obvious to me that 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 I should be writing bigger and bigger checks um, because I can't spend this. I can't spend it in any productive way. Anyway, uh, I, I really. I'm starting to to speak more about philanthropy to my colleagues and friends as well, thinking I, I really need to encourage people to find a cause they believe in and um, give the money away. Well, that's good. I, I, I support you 100% on that. I, I feel very strongly that people who have large amounts of money uh, that obviously are t- could take care of the next 300 generations of their family uh, you know, don't really need to be thinking 300 generations and could be doing more uh, for the world as we know it right now. And so I, I, it's very pleasing to hear that you're going to be pushing philanthropy. I think it needs to be done a great deal more, a great deal yeah. more. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I feel fortunate that I found a cause that I believe in and, and one that can that can use the money, philanthropic funds that won't, you know, nobody else is going to fund um, research into unpatentable um, uh, molecules that actually have this dramatic an effect. They actually work, right? Well, we've got a real issue here, Sanjay, because as you well know, the, the United States government has made research, basic research at the highest levels of university. They've made it very difficult to impossible for over 60 years now. You know, it's been a very long dry spell for my profession. And, and as a result of politics, and, and as you also well know, our government has not only suppressed research, but has suppressed research around the world by threatening to sanction countries who didn't cooperate in also sanctioning research. This has been a, a difficult and reprehensible. I mean, what we've done here in this country is what one would think gets done in a place like North Korea. Or, or, or possibly Russia, where the government, you know, suppresses university scientists. It's, it's, it's almost unbelievable, except that it's believable. Because, <laughs> yeah. because really, from a certain perspective, we're entitled to ask the question, who in their right minds would suppress university research? 
What is that about? Univer- We're not talking here about, about people who have nefarious agendas or people, even big pharma, who are out to make money. We're talking about basic university research, people who dedicate their lives to being professors and research scientists. And we've suppressed them. So, so I, I'm, I'm delighted that you have joined this cause and that you, that you bring money to the cause. We need more of you, sir, many more of you. Um, Thank you. And so, yes. Uh, and and tell me, what is the what's the highest priority for the McKayan Foundation? If you could do anything, what are, what are some of your high priorities? So we have three stages that are going to happen one after the other. Our priority is: I want everyone to have access to psychedelic medicine. I'm not saying it's a panacea. I'm not saying that. Um, it can treat every mental disorder, but it can treat a lot and it can help people without diagnoses flourish uh, in ways that like as what's happened with me. So our mission is to make sure everyone has access. Step one, getting it legalized. And that means research. So we've our mission up until this point has been just to fund research. Step two is education and getting the word out that uh, psychedelics are safe, trying to counter some of the propaganda that's been, you know, these brilliant marketing campaigns of just say no, and this is your brain on drugs. We need to counter those and come up with equally brilliant messages of how these medicines can be good for you. And then the third stage is going to be access. Um, These treatments, the way the protocols have been developed to date are very expensive. We need to do, we need to prove that group therapy works. um, And we need to directly subsidize uh, treatment for people in marginalized communities BIPOC, LGBTQ, people in um, uh, marginal socioeconomic status. Uh, and so the foundation will gradually migrate to just providing access. Once once there's there's going to be a mental health clinic on every street corner. Everybody, everybody needs, they'll be like fitness uh, studios. Uh, there's so much that can be done, so much learning that you can do about yourself with these uh, with these medicines. Well, based is, is it based on the what you describe as, if I may use the word, limited success with your daughter, is it is is your belief that psychedelics can change people's lives based on that experience, or is it based on your own with the uh, mushrooms, or but what makes you think that psychedelics can change people's lives for the better? So at this point, nearly all of my friends um, have tried uh, a serious therapeutic dose of psychedelics, um, and. I would say I, you've characterized it correctly. Limited success uh, with my daughter. Uh, I've had what I would consider to be tremendous progress through psychedelics. Um, and one thing I've noticed, and this is true from some of the research, early research in anorexia being done at Johns Hopkins University, uh, but I've seen this over and over again, people will have a psychedelic session and it could be three months later, a year later, that you actually see the changes, the little changes, the little difference in decisions that they make every day start to pile up and suddenly you see a difference in their life. Um, And with my daughter, those little changes are piling up. I saw um, that, you know, in in one, they they saw no change in the first person that they treated at Hopkins um, for a year. But then a year later, suddenly some dam broke and a bunch of, uh, there were a bunch of improvements on the, specifically on the anorexia front. And I've also seen Anecdotally, directly in front of me, um, people uh, taking psilocybin specifically and then then posting on Instagram that, hey, I don't have an eating disorder anymore. I didn't even notice that it disappeared. Right. I mean, my daughter's got a very serious case uh, that that's going to take some chipping away at. But but I've seen the success. Uh, I'm sure you have as well. Yes. Have you you mentioned uh, off off uh, camera? prior to the interview that you'd listen to uh, uh, the archive or one of the archives of my uh, program, Mind, Body, Health and Politics. Did you by chance hear my interview with Ayelet Waldman, who wrote the book, A Really Good Day? Or are you oh, familiar I, with it? Oh, no, I'm familiar with the book. I love that book. It was one of the very first books I read on uh, psychedelic therapy. Well, you um, know, the reason I'm asking is because Ayelet suffered for 20 years with bipolar, and you mentioned that you uh, have the condition bipolar. And so I thought that interview and, and her work of microdosing with LSD might be of interest to you personally. 
Is it? And have you tried uh, microdosing for a period of time to see if it, it gives you uh, a, a, any benefit? Yes. So first, I'm going to go listen to that interview. Uh, I'd love to hear more from her per- personally about about her story. Um, yes, I've tried microdosing with psilocybin and with LSD. The research to date or anecdotal evidence to date says that everybody has their own preference. They don't work. It, they, they work in very similar ways. Um, what I've found personally is that if I dose at a level that is actually subperceptual, um, which would be around 10 micrograms of LSD, um, it doesn't affect me. Um, I, I don't notice any change in mood, any change in my, my day. If I go to just barely perceptible 20 micrograms, then I find it, it, it's a little bit agitating, but in a positive way. I feel, I feel like getting up, doing things. I feel uh, motivated. Um, but only for certain types of things, for creative things or for fun things or for social things, um, it becomes harder to do email. And of course, you know, you go up from 20 micrograms and I don't want to do anything productive at all. But it's, uh, it's, um, it, can, it can lead to a lovely day. Um, you know, the research to date is really inconclusive. The latest Imperial study showed a really powerful placebo effect. Um, so here's a thought. And so we're sponsoring a, a study at University of Toronto on microdosing to actually see, you know, in a proper double-blind placebo-controlled study, if there's an effect. And here's what I think we're going to find. I think we're going to find that it works if you believe in it. So it's a form of placebo, right? But I'm sure there are there are medicines that work if you believe in them. Like you need both. You need the medicine and you need to believe in it. What are we going to do with that information? I don't know. Well, you mentioned going from uh, a, a sub-sensate, you know, 10, which is about the average number for most of us to, to be sub-perception, perceptual, to 20. And I would recommend to you that you try going up one microgram at a time from 10. Try going to 11, 12, and 13 in, in those lower, in those numbers, because I do understand exactly what you're saying, both professionally and personally, about the jump from 10 to 20. When you're at 20, you're going to notice a kind of buzz, and I'm sure you noticed it. It's not anxiety, but it's a buzz. And uh, depending on your relationship to a buzz, it can be anywhere from energizing, like a kind of speed, to uh, bothersome like uh, on the edge of anxiety, which also has a buzz to it. And fear also has a, a buzz to it, but it's a different buzz than the buzz of anxiety because the, 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 the neurotransmitters put out a different signal. So I would recommend you, you titrate and see if you can find a number uh, that, that is both below any form of agitation but just above not noticing at all and see if that has an effect on your condition. If you don't mind me offering that, you know, here on the air, which I'm comfortable doing, obviously, um, because I'm a clinician, you know, and as soon as <laughs> when I hear of something that I might be able to help with, I just naturally jump right in. Um, I myself have done this experimentation that I'm describing to you. And my takeaway is that what we're going to find, and this is a, you know, an educated guess, is a variation of what you're saying, that it's going to be a combination of, of intentional placebo plus the medicine, right? You believe in it, plus the medicine does something. I think what we're going to also find is that what people basically like about it is that it's a mild energizer. It, that little buzz on a certain percentage of the population is an energizing buzz. And I, I, I'm guessing that that's why it's so popular in Silicon Valley, because in Silicon Valley, they're wanting to work long hours and getting a little buzz from something that's safe, that does not cause, as amphetamines do, a post-high depression, 
that can be dark, having something that does it is sought after. Uh, New Vigil, also called Pro Vigil, is one of those. But New Vigil has some amphetamine in it. So it has complications, and it can particularly have complications for people who have any issues with their hearts because they have to be careful with amphetamines. So we'll see what happens, and I'd love to hear more about this double-blind study. I hope you'll keep me posted on this double-blind study that you're doing in Toronto. I think that's great, a great piece of work, a great piece of work. Thank um, you, and thanks for the clinical advice as well. I, I, I will try it. Next time I'm feeling a little down, I'll start that experiment up. and looking forward to the results. Well, yeah, I mean, given depending on, on how you experience the symptoms of your bipolarity, you, you might not wait till you're feeling a little down. You might just do it in and of itself over a period of time. I mean, I interviewed a fellow who microdosed following Fadiman's one day on, two day off protocol, and he microdosed for nine months. And again, it's an anecdotal story, of course, but he reports very significant positive changes, personality changes. And he was dealing with some disruptive emotional stuff as well. And I know Jim Fadiman has probably hundreds of stories so uh, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to connect with him. But as we're talking about books, and we mentioned Ayelet Waldman's book, are there books that you would like our listeners to know about that have influenced you in a positive way? Could you share that with us, please? Um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've read How to Change Your Mind by Michael Paul, and I have to lead off with that because it's the book that I recommend to absolutely everybody who wants to learn more uh, about psychedelics. It's it's written in a very accessible way, and it covers a lot of experiences of somebody who was initially skeptical, maybe uh, anxious about trying these medicines, and then uh, gradually uh, discovered what their you know their their positive uh, uses. Um, so in, in many ways, it, it mirrors my own experience with uh, with psychedelics. I did lead read. Um, Eilat Waldman's uh, book early on. And then I started getting into books that were more heavily focused on on psychedelics. So Rick Strassman's book on DMT, The Spirit Molecule, was really valuable to understand what happened to research as well as um, some of the effects of DMT. Uh, Chris Bash uh, wrote a book about, um, I think, 70 or so high-dose LSD experiences that he had over a period of several years with his his wife acting as a therapist. Chris Bosch took 500 plus micrograms 73 separate times. He it's may be amazing. <laughs> he, he may be the Guinness Book of Records all time mega dose uh, recorder because he recorded, you know, and his wife uh, at the time was a clinical psychologist, so he had a great guide for those trips. But, but, it's, that's a very interesting, you, you know what he did. I mean, he, he really bypassed ego dissolution and dealing with our neuroses in the first level. He bypassed that completely and went from normal to cosmic hyperspace every time. You know, he was out in the cosmos. You know that. Yeah, okay. well, um, Richard, I, I, uh, so I accidentally once took 800 micrograms of LSD. I misjudged uh, what a size of a tab was, and I decided I wanted 200, turned out to be 800. It was a transcendent experience. I understand when Chris Bosch talks about his experience, I know exactly what happened to him because it happened to me. Um, I saw the center of the universe. I saw the center of all meaning and existence and matter and energy. It was a giant purple ball. in some ways, it was a horrific experience. Uh, as as valuable as it was, and as happy as I am that I did it, I don't ever want to go there again. Um, <laughs> so when people talk about a bad trip, that was a bad trip. I, I ended up in this really? recursive fractal oh, I'm so time sorry. loop. Did no, you have would, a guide? Did you have a good guide? Uh, yeah, no, no, I did. Well, and um, and so I mean, it, it was both a male and a female, and they were checking on me to make sure I was okay, um, but. I got trapped in this loop where everything that happened to me just happened over and over again. And as soon as I'd realize it, I'd realize, oh, my God, everything's repeating. Oh, my God, everything's repeating. Oh, my God, everything's repeating. And then as I started to freak out from that, I would see the big purple ball and I'd be at the center of 
existence. And, you know, I, I forget the word for it, but this this notion that what we see on psychedelics or what you see in a dream or something is somehow more real than reality. And that's what that felt like. And that feeling is still with me. So I lost all fear of death. I lost Good. any, you know, any fear of uh, anxiety or, you know, I'm, things are able to deflect off me in a way now that they never did before. Wonderful. Because, because I saw it. I saw, where, I saw where I came from. I saw where I'm going. It's all well, good. Well, that wasn't a bad trip. That sounds like a great trip. The only thing that's a little disappointing is that, that some of your takeaway is unpleasant. And I would have wished that your guides would have guided you towards mastering that unpleasantness while it was happening. So you would have it as something you conquered rather than something you were left with. Right. Uh, and uh, this is a very good point. I think uh, I would say that my guides for the experience were uh, experienced therapists, but not experienced with LSD guiding. Yeah, that um, doesn't work. You've got to, you've got to, you've, and too many therapists try to reflexively take their patients, putting aside psychedelics, away from dark negative experiences, thinking that that's helpful and missing out that the most effective thing you can do with a dark negative experience is go deeper into it and 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 with the guide be able to to witness it together to look at it to experience it to master it to conquer it and then come out knowing that that piece of work has been done so that there's no sort of damocles lurking in the recesses of the mind that might come out at any time and do some dirty work because you've done it you 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 went right into it and and i i champion that method and i speak about it a lot because to me the best trip is the beginning of a bad trip because it's that stuff that's that's the work going in there and seeing all wonderful things like I have the pyramids and the beginning of time and existence and the source, that's all wonderful. But getting into that dark, scary stuff of bad things happening and negative loops and repetitive thinking and all that, that's the meat that we've got to conquer if we're going to live free when we're off the medicine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned Pollen's book. You mentioned ILS book. You mentioned Chris Box book. Any other book? What about my book, Psychedelic Medicine? Have you read that? <laughs> I am four chapters into Psychedelic Medicine. I'm loving it. I uh, I really appreciate the the intros on the political aspects of of how we got to the situation that we're in now. So, um, uh, so I will I will finish that shortly. I'm listening to the audio version, and and eventually I'm going to write a book myself. I so here's Good. a question, Richard. That. I feel like I've got a story to tell, but I'm trying to f figure, I don't want to repeat what other people have done. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm South Asian. I come from a community that's very conservative. I was uh, three years old when I left New Delhi uh, to come to ah. Canada. So you um, have the language lurking in the back. <laughs> oh, I do. Uh, no, I, I can speak Hindi. I shudder to do it here because I'll get a bunch of laughter from people who hear it later and saying, you know, your accent is atrocious, but I do understand it. Um, Great. Which is, uh, which is, comes in handy all kinds of times. Uh, so I, um, yeah, I, I find it originally difficult to talk about my bipolar disorder, to talk about depression. These aren't things we talk about in our community. Um, and uh, but I'm, I'm past that. I'm way past that. I've had the kind of success that people aren't going to treat me differently because they find out that I have bipolar disorder. Um, and so now how do I leverage that? How do I leverage that to have people listen to the story? So, you know, I've taken lots of notes on all of my psychedelic experiences. And I think there's an opportunity here to collect that into um, uh, uh, into book form, um, kind of like what you've done with your Confessions of Psychedelic Elders. I've really enjoyed those podcasts and uh, um, putting them all together in one place, I think is fantastic uh, double dipping of source material. Um, so I'm hoping I'm, I'm going to be able to do something along that line with my own. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking yeah. of a, I'm thinking of a title. Now, you'll be the first person who's heard this and you can tell me just how stupid this is. But I was thinking, you know, that, that, that there was going to be about about uh, drugs 
and success and love and something like uh, along that line. Like to me, the ultimate me message of psychedelics is that we're not alone and it connects us with the universe in a really radical way um, with our fellow humans, but with, with everything. Um, and so I was going to go with dose, pray, love, although I don't like the word pray, but that's what I was going to go with. And I'm, I'm, I'm ready for, for, for people to say that, no, you can't bring religion into this. Uh, what do you think? I think the title of your book is I'm Bipolar, Are You? <laughs> uh, that will get a very specific segment very interested in this. Um, and, I'm, and I'm wondering whether you might want to start a podcast on bipolarity and invite people who are bipolar to come on your program and talk to you about it and get bipolar out of the closet and out into the world for everybody because all it is is another condition of the human beings that's all it is just like anorexia just like depression just like anxiety these are just things that human beings have and just like we got cancer out of the closet and i and, and i just i'm a cancer survivor as of uh, a week ago uh, wow. it, i can tell you that story which just happened to me but as we got cancer because when i was a little boy sanjay when people got cancer, they were afraid to talk about it. And, and people would talk behind their backs and they would whisper and they would say, oh, so-and-so Gloria, she got cancer because it was almost like leprosy. It was like if you had it, you know, it was, it was a stigma. And all of these things, being different, being different can be a stigma. And, and that hurts human beings. None of us want to be stigmatized. And the last thing any of us want is to be ostracized. Ostracized is the worst thing you can do to a human being. You put them outside of the culture. You're not acceptable as a human being. And all of these labels that we have are stigma, uh, stigmata, and they, they ostracize people. And so I, I would encourage you, if you're looking to tell your story, to focus on that which you have experienced, which is what you're calling bipolar. I don't know what you really have. I have an idea, you know, based on the words bipolar, but who knows what Sanjay Signal really has other than Sanjay Signal and people who get to know him. He's not the same as every person who calls himself bipolar. He's Sanjay Signal who has a particular way of being and his depression isn't the same as every person's depression, but that doesn't mean it isn't similar, but it isn't necessarily the same. And so I encourage you, if you, you ask me, you know, what do I think of it? There's a long-winded answer, which is tell the world, use your position of success to tell the world that a person who has this terrible diagnosis, bipolar, used to be called manic depressive, Oh, another word, you know, we try, whoa, manic depressive, what does that sound like? And schizophrenia that we have these names, split personality, what does that mean? You walk down the street, you know, talking to yourself. All of these things are nothing more or less than part of the human condition. And the best we've ever done treating them, Sanjay, is the short periods of time in America when we treated them, the people who have them, as just people who have a particular condition and nothing more or less. But it was a very short period of time that we did that. So anyway, that's my answer to your question. And, and, uh, and just as you have got interested in um, applying psychedelic research to your daughter's condition, anorexia, I would say apply psychedelic research to the conditions that you have suffered from depression and what's called bipolar dis disorder and apply psychedelic research to that. So then, you know, it's a double win. You're helping the research, you're helping the people of the world, and you might personally get some benefit out of the medicine that comes out of it as well. Absolutely. No, that's great advice. So I, I took the note. <laughs> that's great <laughs> advice. Now, let me ask you a question, though. So I had this conversation with my daughter. So you as a clinician, she is a clinician, psychiatrist. Um, uh, so the Lamotrigine that I take now for my disorder uh, works extremely well with no side effects. I've been taking it for 18 years. Um, but, and yet I, keep, I continue to experiment with psychedelics. I recently tried 5-MeO-DMT for the first time, and I thought, oh, God, I feel, 
Yeah, the toad. Oh, it was amazing. Um, I, 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 everybody's got to try this uh, at least once in their life. Um, it, it did so many positive things. And I'd love to come back and talk about what that experience meant for me. But one of the things was I came out of it thinking, hey, I think maybe my bipolar's gone. So I stopped taking the, the Motrogene. And I, over a period of I don't know, three months, I kind of slid into this, it wasn't depression. I, I would say I was operating at 80%. And, um, and my daughter said, why don't you just take your medicine? Like what, what is, what is, what is it going, what's going on in your psyche that makes you not want to take the Lamotrigine? I said, I just, I want to be able to say that psychedelics cured my bipolar disorder. It was an experiment and clearly the experiment failed, uh, or at least this particular part of it failed. Um, so my question for you as a clinician then is, should I, I mean, the medicine in this particular case, pharma worked for me. Uh, should I continue to experiment? on the bipolar disorder treating with psychedelics? Or should I just kind of let that go and work on other parts of, of my personality? On a scale of one to 10, when the bipolarity is rearing its head, one to 10, one is not at all, even though it's rearing its head, and 10 is downright debilitating. How strong is it? Well, it's not, it's 10. I destroyed my life when I was uh, on a Maddox spree at age 30. You said you were off the Motrogen for three months. Yes. How severe was the, was the bipolarity during the first two months? Wasn't noticeable. Well, there's a clue. You can go two months any time and take a break. So then the question is, how, much, how many days in a row do you need to take the Motrogen after the two-month hiatus in order to then take another two-month hiatus. Could you take the Motrogen for a week and then take another two-month break? Could you take it for a month, two months? I would try to find that out. You'd have an interesting experiment. Suppose it turns out that the Motrogen can set you on the right track after a week. Well, it would be a week of Motrogen, two months off. And how do we know two months is the magic number? Maybe sometimes you'd go six weeks, Maybe sometimes you'd go 10 weeks. Maybe sometimes you'd extend. So I would, I would work on that for sure, because I personally prefer to be au natural, and I never took any medicine of any kind except psychedelics till I was 82 years old. Now I'm taking things because I've developed some, quote, conditions that my immune system hasn't beaten yet. But as soon as my immune system beats them, I'll, be, I'll do my best to get off them. Because my, my concern is, with, with all medicines that become an annuity, namely you gotta take them every day, there's gotta be a price. And the price, my guess is, is to the immune system. Because the immune system has to metabolize, it's gotta work with whatever comes in that's different. And I'm going to give you an example from my own life. Three weeks ago, I found out that I had been misdiagnosed for a year with a pimple that was on the right here, which was thought to be a benign basal cell carcinoma. And it turned out, after a year, I told my doctor to cut it off and send it in because his treatment wasn't working. And it came back as the most aggressive form of malignant melanoma. And I look it up and it's, a kind, it's nodular melanoma. It can kill you in six weeks. In fact, I met somebody yesterday here at our local hospital and, and when, when she found out what I had, she said, oh my God, that's what killed my aunt in six weeks recently. Okay, so, I've got it. My wife is scared. We look it up. You know, you could be gone in six weeks, and I've already had it for a year. You know, what's going to happen here? So I had surgery, which is called sentinel lymphectomy. And what they do is they put radioactive material around where the tumor was, and it drains down into the lymph, and then the lymph is excised, a piece of it, and tested because the melanoma goes to the lymph first 
before it goes to the rest of the lymphatic system and to the body. That's the first place, and it's called it's called a signal, a sentinel lymphectomy, because this is like a sentinel officer. That's the first place it goes. So after I have this done, you can this well, you, I mean, you can see swelling and probably some of a scar there. Um, the bandage fell off this morning, uh, ten days later. Um, so I'm told I'm going to hear about the results in about 10 days. That's an interesting 10 days when you're looking forward to finding out, right? And my surgeon, Dr. Jonathan George, a great surgeon at UCSF Medical School, calls me up four days later, Tuesday morning of a week ago, to say to me, you're all clear. You don't have, you don't have the melanoma anymore. I said, how is that possible? I've got the most aggressive form of melanoma. He said, your body, your immune system encapsulated the melanoma for the entire year and prevented it from going anywhere, and now it's cut out and thrown away. So this is a tribute to my immune system, but the reason I'm telling you the story is it's the most powerful story that, that I've experienced or know of, of the immune system being able to do such a thing makes a circle makes a circle around an aggressive melanoma for an entire year and stops it from spreading that's that's quite a nice piece of work and it tells me what this immune system is capable of that i wouldn't have known right that's, that's so, an amazing story it is an amazing story but it's not unique other it's happened to others but i'm not a pioneer but i'm in a i'm in a small club a very small club for sure um but where i'm headed with this story is it has reinvigorated me to an interest in research and information about the immune system and the relationship between psychedelics, which is a major interest of mine, as you know, and the immune system. So instead of simply focusing research on how psychedelics can be used as a medicine to heal, which is so important and so much I look forward to, and is so thrilled that I am to hear what you're doing and, and, and sponsoring it with, with your good fortune financially, I am now interested in the relationship between what psychedelics can do to booster, to support, to facilitate the immune system, because obviously my immune system is, is capable of doing, you almost might call it magic, right? So it's opened up, it's opened up this area of interest for me. And, and, and I'm, I like this way of looking at it because in my personal life, I've always been interested not just in what causes sickness in my patients, but what causes health in my patients, playing to the positive. What are they doing that works that we could do more of rather than focusing all our energy on what they want to talk about, which is their problems, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, and, and I agree. I mean, it, what's funny when I went back on the Lamotrigine, regime, um, it took maybe 20 minutes after I took the tablet for me to feel the effects of it. Um, when it's supposed to take two weeks for it to kick in it, and it wasn't placebo, there's no chance of it being placebo. The effect was too dramatic. Um, why do you and, say that? Uh, it was also the third time I'd tried this particular experiment of, of coming off of it because I thought I something had happened. One time it was just, hey, it's been 10 years. I must be cured by now. You said you didn't think the Motrogene could be working that quickly. Did you say that? No, no. I said it couldn't be placebo. It was actually the Lamotrigine. And so what makes you think your mind can't work that quickly and create a placebo effect in 15 minutes? Now, let me follow that with the following. Mm -hmm. I have a patient who suffers severely from OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, as well as some other complications, which are serious. He takes medicines that take up to six weeks 
to get up to blood levels that have an effect. He has told me time and time again that he goes off his medicine, which he does from time to time, sometimes for months, just like you did. Everybody who takes medicines all their lives want to go off it for months at a time. It's part of the human condition. When he takes the medicine after he's been off for months and he's starting to get symptomatic and he thinks he needs his meds, just like you, he takes those medicines and has it feels them immediately, even though he knows it's almost impossible for the medicine to be giving him that feeling. And he really? says, okay. he, says you know, he says openly, it's got to be placebo, but that's good enough because it's working. I'm so happy you told me that story. Uh, I thought great. you would be. It's a great story and it fits uh, to this. you because What's yes, interesting is when I maybe first the, the, the Motrogene isn't working in 15 to 20 minutes, to be but the, the power of your mind might be working in 30 uh, seconds. Uh, and it took two weeks to kick in. Um, but the first time I tried stopping it and then started again, I went down to 100 milligrams, worked great. Then I stopped it, started again, went down to 50 milligrams. Um, so that's the extent of my experimentation is now 50 milligrams, but every day works. And so I guess the next experiment is going to be, so what happens if I take it? I feel what seems to be placebo, but let's say I feel that effect and I feel good. How, how long does that feeling last before I start feeling sluggish again? Oh, I'll yeah. do the experiment. I'll do the experiment. That's uh, And by the way, slug sluggish is not the same as depressed. Oh, no, no. I, I know what depressed is. Oh, oh my right. God. Um, but, but so this is the thing, like when I was depressed, when I was on my bipolar depression cycle, I would say that I was at 20% functionality. So what psychedelics have done have taken to me to the point where now I can be at 80% functionality off the medicine. Maybe more psychedelics will take it to 100%, maybe a little bit of Lamotrigine and the psychedelics. It's going to be an interesting experiment to do. Um, but the psychedelics, you know, isn't it, it seems that anecdotally, there was at least one survey study done on this showing that people who have lifelong use of psychedelics live longer and that maybe there is some cumulative effect on, this, on the uh, immune system that happens. They're anti-inflammatories. We don't really know how it might work. Um, I think you're onto, I believe you. you're onto something there that's worth researching. No question. I'm going to ask another quite personal question about this and then we're going to move on to something else. Mm-hmm. Do you do aerobic exercise? I do not. I do weightlifting. So there's, okay. there's a slight okay, increase just, of pulse. Okay, let me just tell you this and then we'll move on. Based on my 50 plus years as a clinician, I think the most effective medicine available on the planet for depression is aerobic exercise. Mm -hmm. And of the and when I do say aerobic exercise, I'm talking about between 60 and 80 percent of max heart based on the formula 220 minus your age times 60 percent, 220 minus your age times 80 percent, and that gives you the bandwidth of aerobic exercise 60 to 80 percent. And Indiana University did the initial study on this where they wired people up to various machines and had them do aerobic exercise for various amounts of time. And when I read that research some 30 or 40 years ago, I changed my life dramatically from a guy who got exercise by turning the pages of reading a book to a guy who figured out how to do some kind of aerobic exercise five to seven days a week. And uh, it, was a, it was a game changer. And by the way, when I started, I, I was able to run like maybe five minutes. But what I knew, and what, what I knew was, if I could, yeah, I mean, a book page turner, I mean, how many could I run? I was winded after five minutes. But what I also knew was that if I added one minute a week for 50 weeks, at the end of the year, I'd be running for an hour every day. And adding one minute a week is nothing. It's like you don't even notice it. So at the end of the year, I was doing an hour. And two years later, I ran my first marathon 26 miles. So I literally went from being a, a page turner, you know, b b to, to running marathons, 
by that progression of one minute a week. And part of the reason I did it is that I had what I called morning grumpiness. It was just a little this side of morning depression. It wasn't quite depression, but it wasn't a happy guy. And once I got into reading, I read that Indiana University, I started the program, and once I got into that routine, I would get up with the grumpy, pull on my running clothes, run out the door, come back after the run, and I was the happiest guy in the world for the rest of the day, and I was in love with life and everybody else, and the grumpy was gone. And that's been true to this very day. Uh, and, and, and I've put, I don't know how many hundreds of patients, if not thousands, that I've told this story to. Okay, well, I'm going to leave you with that commentary on that, and I'm going to ask you to get back to some other questions. Do you have some ideas about how to get psychedelic molecules to a wider variety. I mean, obviously you had the resources to get on a plane with your daughter and fly to see Carhartt in England, but not everybody can do that. And now we've got people doing these expensive tourist trips to the Amazon to take ayahuasca, but certainly not everybody can do this. And there's concern in the field that psychedelics are gonna be a wealthy person's medicine and not be available to the masses. Do you have some ideas on that that you can share? I think that these medicines are so effective that people will find a way to have access to them. My fear is that in finding a way to get access, they'll, they'll abandon safety. And these are such powerful medicines that doing them on your own without appropriate training, as I, as I saw with my LSD trip, um, can, can be less effective and, uh, and possibly dangerous. So we do need to make sure that there's legitimate ways of getting uh, access that um, they still give you the, the guidance that, uh, and the container that you need to have. Um, but, you know, you don't have to take, get on a plane and take a trip. Um, here in Toronto, in any major city, I think in, in North America, you will find therapists, licensed therapists, who are willing to risk their license and, and um, uh, censure by their licensing boards because they know these medicines are so powerful and to treat people um, underground and with sliding scales and be able to treat them um, for, for costs that are reasonable. Uh, and so a question for you, Richard, and I've been asking this to a lot of people, is I have access to, to those, those people, th those treatments. Um, not everybody does. What's my responsibility as, as a citizen, I mean, the Nikayan Foundation is a government-licensed, authorized organization that gives money, gets tax benefits. What am I doing on a podcast here, essentially advocating people to break the law and go get underground treatment because it works, right? What's my responsibility as a, as a citizen? That's a great question. I think there are times, I know there are times when governments suffer from what's called sociocultural lag. Sociocultural lag is when everybody's driving 70 miles an hour and the speed limit is 55. <laughs> That's not the same as the speed limit 70, uh, 55 and six people are speeding or 20 people or 5% or of the people. When 5% of the people are speeding, they're doing something illegal. When 90% of the people are going above the limit, they're telling the government, you've got the speed limit wrong. What's happening with psychedelics, when we've got over 30 million people who have tried LSD, when we've got, we don't know how many, or probably over 100 million people have tried marijuana, we, we, the, the numbers of people who have tried MDMA are in the tens of millions. These people in mass are saying to the government, you've been making a mistake for the last 50 years and you're turning honest people into criminals. And that isn't right. That isn't right. And one of the problems of this Sanjay, it has created an atmosphere so that many people who have been experimenting with these, with these various psychedelics look over their shoulder 
or while they're taking it, if they're not taking it in a great place and following the rules of set and setting, might get paranoid even while they're under the influence, which is one of the worst things that can happen. And so I champion the cause of openly talking about what we're talking about on this program. And that's why I wrote the book, Confessions of the Psychedelic Elders, or I, I've created the book actually, because I want the world to know that famous prominent citizens who are good citizens and good parents and, and taxpayers, contributors, people like yourself who form foundations, good people who have real daughters and sons like you and I do, who we want to take care of and love like everybody else, that we are using these substances and we're using them for the right reasons. We're not taking them and hanging out of airplanes or jumping out of buildings or any kind of nonsense, right? What are we taking them for? For personal growth, expansion, healing. Listen to your story. Taking it for something that's very serious called, called bipolar disorder and wanting to get help. Listen to your story about your daughter, sir, flying her to England because of a condition that we call anorexia, but trying to get help, and you have to go to England because you can't get the medicine legally where you are. So I, I champion what you're doing and what I'm doing a great deal, and we need more of us to do the exact same thing. Otherwise, it'll take another 50 years, and we'll still be doing something illegal. And by the way, the bottom line of what I'm saying here is mass hypocrisy. It's mass hypocrisy, because it's not as if people in Congress themselves don't know what it is you and I are talking about. There are plenty of them that do. They have children just like you and I do, and those children are telling them what's really going on in the world. But it's mass hypocrisy. And we've got to conquer that eventually. I hope we do. I hope so too. But I appreciate the sentiment and I appreciate the encouragement. What kind of warnings do you want to give the public who are listening to this? Well, okay. So I'm, I'm based in Toronto, Canada. And in Canada, cannabis was made legal uh, because of a Supreme Court challenge under our Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, to be able to treat yourself medicinally with cannabis and to prevent um, the, the federal Supreme Court from um, forcing the, the issue, uh, the, the government saw that it was going to lose the case provincially, uh, or did lose the case provincially, and saw they were going to lose the case federally. And so they proactively, thank God, uh, legalized cannabis. Um, you know, looking forward to seeing that happen one day in the U.S. as well. Um, but they're trying to avoid that happening again with psychedelics because it was embarrassing. And so we find ourselves in this interesting situation in Canada where uh, the use of psychedelics is becoming more and more brazen and public. You can walk into stores in Vancouver and buy uh, dried mushrooms. You can order on the regular internet um, uh, half a dozen different psychedelics uh, because the government doesn't want to crack down because if they crack down, it's going to the first person they put in jail is going to result in a Supreme Court challenge. And so I'm able to operate freely um, and the scary thing that happens now is if anybody can go into a store and buy mushrooms, people are going to do what one friend of mine did when he was 17 years old in college. He's going to take mushrooms. He's going to have a horrendous trip because he's in a dark room with a depressed friend listening to Led Zeppelin. And 40 years later, he's going to tell everybody he talks to that mushrooms are uh, the devil's work, that nobody should take them, that they're going to destroy your life. And when you ask him the conditions under which he took it, and you, so my very first question in a situation like this is always, how much did you take? And the answer is always, I don't know. It's, it's a handful, right? Well, how much is a handful? Good God, that could be like 10 grams. Um, so what I'm afraid of, the warning I want to give people is these are powerful, powerful medicines with an incredible potential for good. Do your research, understand what you're getting into, um, for God's sakes, have somebody with some experience show you the way. There's plenty of people out there who are happy to discuss their experiences with you. Don't rely on Reddit, uh, although it's a great source for information. Get out there and find somebody, ideally uh, a licensed professional. And there's lots of them as well uh, who will help you 
um, begin this journey. And once you've done it a little bit, you learn enough that you can uh, you can um, use them independently. But at the beginning, please don't do this on your own. That's the warning I want to give people. If you don't know how much of a psychedelic you took, you took the wrong amount. This is something that you want to know exactly how much you take before you took it, correct? Absolutely. And you want to have someone with you, certainly in your early stages of experimentation, who is a professional who can guide you through the waters. Is that correct? Absolutely. Thank you very much. We're at the end of our time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I wish you great fortune with the Nikkei, and I'm sure you're going to have great fortune because you obviously know what you're doing. And let's you and I stay in touch. Uh, send me some of the research that you're doing at, uh, at Toronto there. I want to hear about that double blind study. And uh, we'll get you back on the program in six months or a year and give us an update on what's happening. I really look forward to that, Richard. Thanks for the opportunity. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks. Thanks. Bye bye.